1: Welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ankur Barwa, who is a senior lecturer at uh, University of Cambridge. We'll be speaking about a brand new Equinox publication called Exploring Hindu Philosophy. Ankur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So typically we begin with beginnings. So tell us about the beginning of this. How did this book arise for you?
0: So uh, let's say in one sense, I did not write the book. The book wrote itself for me.
1: Oh, I know that feeling. (laughs) I
0: know that feeling. And it's quite mystical. So let me try to explain it in less mystical terminology. Um, I have been thinking about writing this book for, let's say, almost 15 years or uh, let's say 10 years. Now, um, over the last 15 years or so, I have been teaching Hinduism in two somewhat different locations. I was teaching Hinduism or philosophy or Indian philosophy or Hindu philosophy in a department of philosophy at the University of Delhi. And then for the last 10 years now, to be precise, I have been teaching Hinduism in the faculty of Divinity, not a faculty of history. So I have been moving back and forth on this spectrum between philosophy, theology, religious studies. Now, when I was teaching philosophy in the Faculty Department of Philosophy at Delhi, I was not just teaching Hinduism. I was teaching subjects like formal logic, symbolic logic, British empiricism, philosophy of science. In fact, some of the happiest days in my life are teaching symbolic logic. I wish I could just go back to teaching symbolic logic. Now, when I moved from this field, teaching symbolic logic, philosophy of science, to teaching only Hindu philosophy, Hindu theology, social religious Hinduism in the Faculty of Divinity here, I realized that I had to recalibrate the way I speak, the way I talk, because people who are listening to my lectures, they may not have received a particular training or education in philosophy. So I started speaking by using more examples metaphors, analogies, symbolisms, trying to communicate the philosophical, theological content of texts like the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavata Purana, the Naya Sutras, and all of that in allegorical, symbolic, analogical terms. And then I have often thought, you know, these are some of these analogies are, of course, based on what it says in the Upanishads themselves. So I don't mean to say I have come up with this analogies for the first time ever. I was thinking, even before the series editor approached me to write this particular volume, uh, is there a way in which I can communicate the essence, the content of what I have been doing, thinking, reflecting on during these uh, discussions with students, whether in supervisions or tutorials or in lectures. And when this offer was made to me, I said, yes, why why don't I do this? And that's one main reason how the book developed. And here's one more reason, uh, which is to say that I have often felt that books on Hinduism, Hindu philosophy, Hindu theology, they come in two different versions. One is the version you find on the internet, which are sometimes very... A simplistic, even misleading, that's one. And number two, the kind of books that people like, let's say, you and me write, which are for uh, fellow academics. They are filled with technical terminologies like end notes, footnotes, bibliography, this and that, we write in a certain style. So I wanted to write a book which is the via media, the middle way between version one which can be quite simplistic sometimes and version two which can be quite dense and obscure sometimes and I wanted to tell people look here is a book which you can read even if you have never heard the word veda v-e-d-a you should be able to pick up this book and work your way through it in five hours on a Saturday and come away thinking okay I have learned something of Hindu philosophy so that was the set of motivations that was taking me in this direction
1: the, the your particular genesis this particular genesis first of all i can I can quite relate to um it took me some while to learn that um, teaching is that I, I wear too many hats, which you know it 's not an occupational hazard because i don't have any hair you know but uh but uh, I think the primary hat that i wear is 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 teaching and i it, it took me some time to realize that research is teaching myself something so I can teach it to others you know uh, the the publication is a form of teaching Um, this this podcast enterprise is public education which sometimes means my own education in public and more often than not means (laughs) um, hopefully some uh, exposure on behalf of our listenership and so I can really relate to a publication stemming from a teaching context Uh, my third and book, my first public book, The Stories Behind the Poses. I did not intend to write this book. Uh, I guess uh, the publisher knocked on my door because um, uh, someone at the publishing house was a student student of someone in a course I taught at Yogic Studies about yoga and Hindu mythology and all of a sudden they're like, well, write a book on this. So, so in your particular case, this genesis actually begs a question I, I asked towards the end of the podcast, but I'll ask it now. Who is this book for? Who might most benefit from reading this book?
0: So I would say in the first instance, anyone who is a second year undergraduate student would benefit from it. And the reason why I say second year undergraduate is because I started writing it for first year undergraduates. And then I realized that I will have to presuppose some basic awareness of philosophical terminology. But you don't even have to be a student at a college or a university. You could be somebody who's just generally interested in what is this category called Hindu philosophy, what is Hindu thought, what is a Hindu intellectual system, what is a Hindu style of inquiry about the meaning of life, the structure of reality. So, number one, it can be a second-year undergraduate student or a slightly more advanced undergraduate, postgraduate student. And number two, a general readership uh, who simply wants to know. And In the process of writing and redrafting sentences, paragraphs, chapters, I have kept that goal in mind, that, you know, to write as lucidly and transparently as possible without using too much technical jargon or terminology. In fact, I would like to think I've used only two technical terms throughout this book, ontology and epistemology and even give to I explain what I mean this is
1: the sweet spot in my view i mean I'm, I'm perhaps biased because uh, the accessibility is crucial to my own work and, and, and as a scholar and beyond but uh, but the, the sweet spot for me is very much this yeah um, um, uh, uh, rendering the erudition accessible uh, it, it's not that there's there, it's not that there's a lack of um, processes in terms of how the iPhone works within the gears, but the, but but the interface is user friendly, right? And so, writing in a way that's user friendly, doing the heavy lifting behind the scenes, and folks can take a deep dive if they wish. But but this is this is crucial, and uh, I've, I've joked on this podcast before that sometimes in in, in previous <laughs> previous scholarly ages, the, 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 the mark of erudition was being opaque. The <laughs> mark of intelligence somehow is being obscure or or or, or jargon-laden in one's discourse. And, and I really feel that there's a turn happening where uh, demonstrating the vitality of what we do and inviting others into the conversation requires of us to render accessible, uh, however obscure our topic may be, you know, that which we write. Um, okay, so yeah, tell and, us a and, bit.
0: And, please, go ahead. Just to add to that, in fact, if you read the book, you will see in some places there is a little girl, girl called Nora, and I use her as an example in some chapters. And as I was writing those pieces or those chapters or those sections, I actually had in my mind's eye this little girl who's was five years old. And I was consciously trying to tell her, somebody who was five years old, this is what this Hindu concept means.
1: Mm. That's actually a wonderful teaching strategy, I find, where... Uh, when one is writing a blog post or or what have what have you, uh, creating slides, one imagines, uh, or even has a particular student or a few students in mind. Um, and I find that even when when one is teaching online, um, when I teach online, there are synchronic components, synchronic synchronous. Uh, yeah, comp- a <laughs> Sorry, uh-huh. I'm, I'm eliding my, my textual um, uh, methodology with my teaching methodology, synchronous components and asynchronous components, but whenever we're recording in an asynchronous setting, really it's, <laughs> we have to imagine <laughs> who's in the room, and even for this podcast, I mean, I, I do have a, a bit of a clearer sense now than at the outset, but it still is a bit of a black box in terms of who's in the room uh, for, for the listenership, but it's, it's really useful to imagine someone else because this, this just calls us into the empathy of communicating an idea. So it's not just making sense to us. it's We're not just making sense of it for us. We are bridging uh, what we have learned and what we think with someone else's awareness. The book very much is written. Uh, it, it, it feels like a, um, a, a very much sort of a, a course- Accompaniment book. Uh, it's not quite a manual, but it's 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 it, it definitely could make for a a solid um, um, a course reader, if you will. What are some of the other strategies you use in the text in terms of um, um, rendering accessible the content?
0: Yeah. So uh, one of the uh, one of the connecting three uh, teams running through the chapter mm-hmm. which is how. Hindu philosophical styles of thinking can, in some cases, become very dense and opaque. But they, as I say in the introduction, I think they touch base with everyday reality. So these are real-world questions that we struggle with. The meaning of life, the point of suffering in a world that we like to claim is filled with hope and beauty. Uh, why should we apply reason? How far does the reason go? Is there a point where reason breaks down, and how would we find what that point is? Would we use reason to find out where reason breaks down? And some of these kinds of inquiries can become very subtle and very mind-bending, mind-dissolving, but by using examples, in the beginning of some of the chapters, so some of the chapters just start with a small episode where I say two people are doing this, and one person says to the other person, "The reason why I start off on that note is again to try to communicate to my readers that look, hold on, some of the stuff is going to get very heavy. You will need to be told what that particular Vyakti means, and don't, 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 don't. It will go on and on and on. Not just in my book, you can go and read twenty other books. But what is driving that line of inquiry is when Macbeth says, like, is this a real dagger I hold in my hand? That question is not just a question that bothers troubles philosophers. It can happen to you as well. When I was walking down the road, did that dog I think I saw, was the dog real or not? These kinds of questions, they uh, afflict us, assail us, perturb us, engage us with, with, uh, you know, a form of, um, routine quality in our everyday lives. And, and that I try to communicate by using these kinds of uh, analogies, examples, uh, which I placed in towards the beginning of some of the chapters. Um, what other uh, styles do I use? I have to say I can't really remember, but I mean, this is the one that comes no, to my anyway. That, away.
1: That's, that's fine. That's fine. So, um, that The one that you actually mentioned in that example is fascinating. So at one point, uh, I think in the, the liberation chapter, you it, it says, uh, is it reasonable to postulate super reasonable? Yeah. So then maybe give us a taste of that process. What, what do you go on to do or say beyond that?
0: Yeah, so um, in many different styles of what is called pedantic philosophical theology, one recurring question is, is it the case that scriptural revelation controls or guides our rational endeavors or is it the other way around. Do our rational endeavors guide or control scriptural revelation? So which way is the causal arrow pointed? That is, if there's a conflict between reason and revelation, do we go and change somehow revelation? Or do we fine-tune reason to make it conform to revelation? Or do we aim at some kind of reflective equilibrium between the two, going back and forth? And the reason why this question comes up to me uh, is because this is a question that has always fascinated me whenever I think about Vedantic debates on that continuum. Some people tend to, some thinkers, some exegetes, some scholars seem to suggest that the way in which we operate with reason in our everyday lives is a good mirror of the deep structure of reality. So if I say I am A and B and C, that sentence has a subject order, a subject a predicate structure, and the structure of reality m- m- mirrors or reflects the structure, the grammatical structure of a sentence in Sanskrit or English. There are some other thinkers who will say, no, this is just an illusion, it's a misconception. You are projecting mistakenly the surface level of grammar in Sanskrit or English or Greek onto the deep level, onto the deep structure of reality. In fact, the deep structure of reality is, is a non-structure. Right, so. That's why I phrased that question this way, that uh, is it possible by using human reason to argue reasonably that reason cannot go further than this? Or is it the case that reason can go all the way, that by operating a rational microscope, so to speak, can we peer into the depths of reality? Or is, is it the case that no such rational microscope can be constructed? Because deep Reality is, in fact, come kind of non-reality or even anti-reality. Uh, that All of that I was trying to capture with that question, which I phrased in that manner.
1: Yeah, and it's, a, it's, it's obviously a fascinating and, and yet relevant deliberation. And on one level, certainly among, uh, we can say, the unthinking or those prone to perception, certainly without question, uh, the, 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 the critical thinking reason, this is required, this is crucial to navigate uh everything from a sales pitch to the news media to 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 one's one's views clearly but then then among the thinking among those who are sufficiently endowed and trained in 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 the realm of reason, then when we pay careful attention to reality the, it, 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 it's, it, can the human experience fit into the left brain? I mean, is there is there more? Is there uh, um, uh, art and uh, spirituality amenable to rational process? Um, uh, go, there's certain cogents innate to our material world. One can say, well, of course, there's a there, there's a predictable, structured process to everything from the atomic to the galactic. Clearly, and yet. Beyond that, we're, we're mystified by what we think of as you know, sort of uh, quantum reality. And so it, 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 it's a fascinating and, and yet, yet vibrant and relevant um, question. What do you feel, given your training, what do you feel, uh, how do I ask this without asking a leading question, um, why might folks turn to Hindu philosophy? Sorry, can you just repeat that
0: question?
1: Why? Why might folks turn to Hindu philosophy?
0: Uh, why, why might you?
1: Yes, my, why might one turn to Hindu philosophy? What are some of the features or some of the, 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 the textures or some of the, 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 the precepts or some, you know, what, what clearly there's a draw among, among scholars, practitioners, uh, a, a greater audience. So, you know, what in your view um, constitutes that draw to Hindu philosophy?
0: Yeah, so uh, let me begin by saying, you know, I would say over the last, 20, 30, 40 years, there has been this increasing awareness of non-European ways of thinking, styles of categorizing reality, ways of being in the world, various styles of thinking, uh, living, and so on, which have not been properly studied for various kinds of reasons. And so in one small, humble way, I'm just contributing to that strand of increasing a scholarship on retrieving pre-modern ways of thinking and living, and resituating them in contem- on contemporary landscapes. So that's number one. And number two, I would say uh, a few things. Number one, when I study some of these uh, texts, philosophical texts, I'm constantly uh, struck by how densely dialectical they are. Like you start off by stating a particular viewpoint, and then you tabulate various possibilities, and you uh, try to explain these possibilities in such a way that you are being fair to the opponent. You don't. You would try not to caricature the Buddhists if you are not a Buddhist. You will try not to caricature the follower of a Sankhya system if you are a Vedantin. And in principle, it should be possible for you to figure out what Buddhism is by reading a text produced by a Vedantic thinker, because that is the aim of the Vedantic thinker, to in principle, to tell the Buddhists what you mean by Buddhism. And this uh, fine-grained dialectical engagement is something that I find very interesting because often the way to begin to understand what we believe is through this dialogical interlocutory process of trying to understand what the other is really trying to say. So not just to disprove the other or dismantle or deconstruct the other, but to improve the quality of disagreement. Then why is it that we disagree? I need to know what is it that you're trying to say trying to think, trying to articulate as far as possible in your own words. And because many of these dialectical, philosophical texts, they start by presenting, uh, elaborating, enumerating as exhaustively as possible the viewpoints of the others, you can feel a bit of the philosophical drama. You can feel a bit of the theological, philosophical, intellectual passion that goes into constructing these types of texts although some of these dialogues can be slightly artificial because you know that who is going to win at the end of the day it is going to be a or b or c so that's one and number two uh the fact that in so many of these philosophical texts even when they can get very let's say religious or spiritual or mystical the argument is pushed forward by giving examples from everyday life right so a figure like devodata will come up every now and then and they Devadatta is doing this, or Devadatta is doing that, and, and a lot turns on how you figure this, how you look at this particular person called Devadatta. I mean, is Devadatta an imperishable self with a mutable body, or is Devadatta just an aggregator or a collection of non-permanent events? Uh, so these two are, or these three are points that come to mind. Number one, the fact that we are contributing to a global understanding of what it means to do philosophical thinking. And number two, this dialectical spirit of inquiry. And number three, this uh, example-based rational inquiry, which I find reflected in many forms of Hindu philosophy.
1: Uh, certainly, David, that does many things
0: <laughs> in
1: various contexts. Right. Um... And, and um, um, for those for those listening who who may not have great exposure, David is sort of the John Smith of <laughs> philosophical examples, and and perhaps etymologically there there is an answer to be found in, in the very in the very meaning of David Dutta in terms of whether or not he is strictly a mundane or a being of earth a dimension beyond that. Regarding the the one of the points you raised about this this uh, this. Uh, This uh, spiritual religious, I just as you as you say the mystical religious slash spiritual dimension to Hindu philosophy, which contrary to how it is often characterized, how Hinduism is characterized in the public imaginary and among various subfields, is not at the expense of cogent thinking. It's not at the expense of critical thinking and, and 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 vibrant dialectic engagement clearly yet there is in addition to that this dimension whether we want to think of it as a, the, the, the 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 pramana shabda pramana whether we want to think of it as you know so it, it begs the question for a reader a, a scholarly reader or a continuing studies reader of this content whether this content is accessible to what extent is this content accessible Um, these truths accessible in the absence of practice or experience or or, or training in that more sort of uh, esoteric dimension, would you say?
0: Yeah, I mean, to give you a slightly different example, not from Hindu philosophy, but let's say in some parts of the Western academy today, people are becoming hospitable to using terms like Christian philosophy. So... People who say, I'm doing Christian philosophy, what they would say is that ultimately the foundation of their way of thinking is revelation, namely the Bible. But that does not prevent them from looking for patterns of rational inquiry, which are inspired by some kind of a revelatory focus. So similarly, I would say that for a Hindu philosopher who may accept, for whatever reason, a Vedic revelational control, Um, When they are teaching Hindu philosophy in the academy, let's let's say in the secular academy, they do not necessarily have to constantly invoke some kind of shabda pramana. They can say, okay, here are some basic presuppositions. The Vedas are infallible foundations. Let's just accept that as a presupposition and let's see what follows from there. Whether or not we agree or disagree on this uh, revelation, uh, revelatory claim is a different matter. Uh, we can set aside this question. I don't want to say we can bracket it, because that can have various other implications. But for the moment, we can set aside this question, whether it is true or false, and let's see what logically, conceptually follows from it. So just as it is meaningful, I would argue to talk about categories like Christian philosophy, Islamic philosophy. It is equally meaningful to talk about Vedic philosophy, Vedantic philosophy, Hindu philosophy. Uh, but the details, of course, will have to be worked out. I'm just giving you a very kind of a broad line, uh, you know, like broad view, answer to that question.
1: Absolutely. And and the question's are always meant to be uh, generative and they're they're, they're, they're they're almost pseudo-rhetorical questions in a sense of, yeah. you know, how do we make sense of this? Yeah. Um, tell us, uh, say a word about the structure of the chapters. How do you progress in your
0: journey in the book? Yeah. So uh, one of the key things I make in this book is that, you know, uh, it is a, a customer to introducing the philosophy in terms of what is called the six system model. So, sorry, the, the six schools or six systems. And what I argue in, in this book is that it is pedagogically, I would like to think, not very useful to keep on talking about six schools, because there's a lot of uh, conceptual cross-border traffic happening, intellectual exchange happening across these so-called six systems. So, in the first chapter, I do introduce these six systems with a brief outline of what they are, Sankhya, Lakshinaya, Vedanta, Mimamsa, and so on. But the the main body of the book does not follow the six system model. What it does is that it picks up basic themes, like what is real or what is unreal? How may we get to know the structure of reality? What means do we use? What instruments do we use? Uh, what does it mean to live a fulfilling life? What are the models of human well-being or flourishing? Uh, what is uh, the structure of, you know, what? Uh, what is the goal of human existence? So these are the kinds of recurring questions which run through the different chapters of the book. And whenever the opportunity comes up or whenever the occasion demands it, I say, okay, this is the Nyaya view, or this is the Vaishishika view, or this is the Vedanta view, but I do not write these chapters by saying, this is what Nyaya says on five different things, What this is what Vedanta says on five different things. Rather, I say, in this chapter, I'm going to say one key thing, this chapter is motivated by one key question. And here are some answers that we find from Hindu philosophical theological texts on that particular question. So this is the overall conceptual thematic frame for the book, not to say, what does the system say about the question? But what is the question that I think is is an interesting philosophical one? And how may may some of these philosophical systems have answered that question?
1: Is this um, work that you... And to continue, like what what are you presently working on? I mean, this is a this is a wonderful sort of general introduction, an accessible introduction to Hindu philosophy. But what what um, one wonders whether your next work will be uh, Hindu philosophy heavy or pedagogy heavy?
0: Yeah, I suppose the next book will be slightly more technical. I mean, it will not be of this type. I for some years now I have been working on and off on one theme, which is the relation between bhakti and jnana, or self-knowledge and devotional love in the Vedantic systems, roughly from 1200 to 1800. So these 600 years. So after key figures like Shankara and Ramanuja, the eighth and the 11th century, but before the coming of what you call modernity. So roughly 1200 to 1700, 1200 to 1800. Um, that is a team that I've been working on and off, but not in a systematic manner. Uh, I suppose that will become my next project. I, I haven't thought about it. That's all right, because
1: yeah. we we uh, thinking aloud is allowed. Yeah. Uh, um. What um, what so intrigues you about this? What is it that fascinates you about this stream?
0: What fascinates me so much about this stream is that. We often find people saying, scholars saying, people in general saying that it is only with the arrival of modernity, so roughly 1750 onwards, that these different systems, the Bhakti, Jnana, Karma, they were harmonized or synthesized by various figures like Radha Krishna and Ramakrishna and so on. But what I've seen is that even as early as the 14th century, 12th century, 13th century, we already find thinkers performing certain iterations of this synthesis. Of course, with the arrival of modernity, I'm using that term in a very blanket manner. There are all kinds of pressures on various intellectuals to show that Hinduism has this vision of synthesis and harmony, which is why they partly why they went down that pathway. But I would like to argue that even in the 14th, 15th centuries already, in some Sanskrit texts, uh, we find some intimation, some pre-articulations of this vision of harmony. And that is what interests me uh, regarding this project.
1: Oh, don't we, I mean, um... Absolutely. We, do, could, could we not say that great exegetes and innovators such as um, and Ramanuja were they not aiming at bridging various strands of religiosity, be it intellectual and uh, and devotional, particularly in the case of Madhvacharya, for example? Uh, t- t- uh, uh, you know, and, and this is something I think this is a trap we fall in quite often. We we really and truly feel that a certain way of viewing synthesizing thinking that the intellect was born of modernity (laughs) the intellect was born in the age of reason and I just strongly suspect that the ancients were much better at code switching between processing something on a spiritual or practical level versus an intellectual level but there's no shortage of slicing and dicing and thinking and synthesizing in the ancient world. It's just that that's not all there is, nor is that necessarily the measure of of, of, of true knowledge in, 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 in all circles. Um, yeah, so that sounds like a fascinating project. Was there anything else about this particular work exploring Hindu philosophy that you hope we touch on?
0: Um, no, I think you have asked me more or less the questions that I thought I would get from you about the motivation, the rationale, what was driving me. Uh, whom I hope to be able to reach out to, what is the structure of the arguments and the chapters?
1: Well, it's, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say this out, uh, I'll vocalize this overtly, uh, which I don't typically, which is the, the strategy or the methodology for the podcast because of the nature, because of your nature as both a scholar and teacher, and your, your penchant for rendering accessible, expressing in simple whole number ratios Complexity of all compounds. Yes, all, yeah. all, all chemical compounds they combine in simple whole number of ratios. So, um, I ask purposely naive questions. Yeah, just to see what a scholar will say, just to see how they will translate that to a conversational thirty thousand foot view response, and and see what comes. In. And more often than not, almost always, I don't have a particular response in mind. Um, but it's it re- it really is fascinating. I've actually had uh, <laughs> I've had half a dozen uh, folks email me after the, the podcast to say, you know, I now understand what my book is about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so here we are. So thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today.
0: Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. My pleasure.
1: For those listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Ankur Barua, uh who is a lecturer at uh, Cambridge. We've been speaking about a brand new, highly accessible, interesting, fascinating um, Equinox publication called Exploring Hindu Philosophy. Um, Keep well till next time. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating life's big questions. Take care.